Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi. Good morning, Holly. How are you doing? I'm busy, just kind of scrapping everything together today, but I'm sure you you know a thing or two about that during this season. <laughs> oh, yes, it's a, it's a busy time, and uh, I would like to announce that Holly is taking the lead in teaching ordinary life this week, and today she's going to tell us what she's going to talk about. <laughs> uh, uh, I love it. I you're like, I that on you. <laughs> and and we can honestly say that before starting this recording we did not have much of a preamble so i had no idea <laughs> i didn't know we were teaching but um you know so i was thinking last weekend i have i have i'm a chronic journaler i always bring my journal to class really to anything that i go to that involves me listening in part because doodling helps me stay focused like it really engages my brain in a different way um, and in part because writing helps me internalize what I'm hearing. But um, it also allows me to go off on tangents. What did he mean when he said? So there's a lot of those. <laughs> um, but you ended by talking about hope and what it means to have hope and what I would call a kind of hopeless world. Because we all are of the nature to get old, grow old, get sick and die. And there is a certain, we, because of our weird relationship to death, there's a certain hopelessness about that. Um, even though it's also the most natural, normal thing in the world. So I was thinking about what does it look like to actually participate in our own becoming, to actively consciously participate outside of, you know, just do your daily spiritual practice, which of course is important and deep and big and aids the process. But what does it mean to hold hope for something that has not yet happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I hope we can get into on Sunday. It's kind of ironic. Uh, I've been thinking ever since you did plant that seed uh, in my thinking earlier in a text that you sent me. Mm-hmm. And I, I have been thinking that, you know, um, I think one of the things that I've not taken seriously enough in my teaching, and maybe you have not either, I'm not calling either one of us to task. I just think maybe we have kind of of glossed over the fact that there's a lot about living in the post-pandemic world that we've not seriously addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there for sure is. Still reeling. Yeah. I was just going to say that I think we're still calculating how all of this has changed us. Yeah. And I've I've said to you before, I think I'm still kind of struggling with like a social inertia, you know, like what does it look like to get back into a pattern of um, being in the world? And in what ways don't I want to, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that maybe I was before. Did you read something recently that sort of sparked that thinking um, living in a post pandemic? Well, and even as I say post, I don't actually mean post. Uh, Maybe we mean post heightened. Well, I, 
you know, no, I haven't read anything uh, specifically about that. Um, we, but I think it's a reality that we need to keep in front of us that we uh, have still not found our footing. I mean, things are not quote back to normal. Maybe not normal is a good th way to think about it. But I like your idea of participating in a conscious awareness of our own becoming. And we're doing so in in uh, in in a context where it seems that there is this disjointed way of life and living. You might remember when Dr. Stephen Kleinbergs came and spoke to class not too very long ago. Then this past in the past two weeks, an op-ed was in the paper by him in the Chronicle. Um, in which he kind of summarized the work of the cancer survey over the last 25, 30 years mm. and described the reality in which the Houston-Harris County area is living. And it's mm -hmm. one of this increased diversity uh, mm -hmm. where there's no ethnic majority. And it's also one where there is increased uh, um Social acceptability and acknowledgement and awareness of the incredible sexual diver identity diversity that's in our culture. Mm -hmm. And that's on one hand. I mean, this is the reality. Steven Kleinberg said that, you know, our leadership is not caught up with what's really going on in the world. And so that's one reality. And then in the other, in the other pod, I look at what's happening uh, at least in the news feeds that I get, I, I, I don't r read the paper like my wife does. I don't watch the news on TV like some people do. But I do get um, uh, the New York Times morning briefing and I do get the CNN's five things every day to look at. And it just seems like that our world is, the leadership of the world is just Ignoring these realities. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm going to boldly say that I don't think that we'll find our answers for the future in systems um, that are that are already in place. And and by that I mean like our political systems, our religious systems, our educational systems. I do not think we will find our answers in any of the systems that are currently in place. And we're going to say that from the context of a system. Exactly. So it's kind of like being in something while also trying to critique it and deconstruct it. All of us live in a system, operate with systems on some level, on in some way, shape, or form. If you don't, you're living off the grid in an airstream in the backwoods of North Dakota. I don't, I don't know, you know. <laughs> um, or my kids would say you live in Ohio, which is just a mythical state. And if you go to Ohio, you you find yourself in Canada. I, I don't know. <laughs> There's some something about Ohio, but um, but it's um, I, I I yeah. I mean, that's the great irony is that how do we get out of systems? within the system. But I don't think that if we sit here and look to our leaders to make the changes that you and I are talking about on that deep psycho-spiritual level, that it's going to happen. That's what Jesus did. Yeah. So Jesus 
is a good example. <laughs> hmm? I said, so Jesus is a good example. I mean, Jesus is an killed. example of someone who tried to deconstruct the system that he was in and change it. Mm -hmm. He did that. And yeah. You can say, yes, he got himself killed and he also started a movement. Yeah. And then guess what we did? We systematized that movement. That's inevitable, don't you think? Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, because it, it, it happens with the best ideas, right? Where the best ideas get sort of, they catch fire. Uh, people all want a part of the flame. They join in and, and then they create, take their own little piece of the fire and, and do it in their way over here. That's, I don't know that I think that that's entirely a bad thing, but, uh, but I guess maybe what I'm saying is that it's time for a remaking of the systems again, because they're just not working for a pluralistic, um, diverse, intersectional world. They're just not working. So given what Steven Kleinberg said, Mm -hmm. how would something new happen within this geographical area that would be hopeful for the all the, the diverse population that is in this area mm. what, what would that look like well speaking directly to the um, gender and sexual uh, identity diversity that that i think the conversation around that has increased not just in houston but around the globe what would it look like for Houston to have a trans clinic, you know, that, that is specifically for trans people either seeking surgery or not, but who, you know, that's one way to participate in systems change is we're going to start a certified, legitimate, well-funded clinic for people who identify as trans. Mm. We don't have that. I know of a woman who leads a group for young people who are, uh, identifying as trans or in that process of trying to figure it out. But that is about the only thing I know that is specifically for trans people. My friend in California who mm -hmm. sends me all these cartoons and jokes, mm -hmm. uh, some of them I use and some of them are um, just too, uh, I can't use them in, in public yet, but he sent <laughs> me one today, which is a cartoon showing this guy who says, um, it is, but it's a trans guy who's now a woman, and says, um, uh, Georgia is now rethinking her decision uh, to transition to a woman after seeing how long the line is to get into the women's bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> so there's another change we could people. make. <laughs> Double the size of women's bathrooms. Um, yeah. That would be another change we could make. Or and make them unisex. Yeah, or make them unisex, which we know how that went in Texas. Um, we, you know, the other thing that could be done on a citywide level, and this would be definitely participating in systems. So in a way, it's like we have to participate in systems and also agree to be subversive at the same time. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, what if we had a department of anti-racism? at the city level that looked at every policy, everything that came through the city and said, and looked at it through. Would be one, I think that would yeah. be wonderful. What are mm -hmm. the odds of that? I don't know. <laughs> but, it, but you know what, if every city, town, every township with its own sort of like local government had a department of anti-racism, 
and, and was trained on, wait for it, critical race theory, then we could actually look at the way that policies, laws, and, and procedures get enacted that can be impacts on the level of anti-racism. I'll tell you a thought I did have this morning as I was thinking about this podcast and about our teaching and about, about going forward. I was thinking that, okay, this idea about post-pandemic context mm-hmm. it came up for me this morning. And I was thinking, you know, it would, it would probably be helpful for us really to acknowledge this. Mm-hmm. Um, to keep it alive, that um, we there are some things that will never ever be the same again because of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. what are those? And if if we have this opportunity to create some new structures and not quote go back to the way things were, then how do we want to seize the day? Mm-hmm. to take advantage of these opportunities, what it really means to be in a post-pandemic and post-modern world to, to, together. And also I was thinking about what I want to do is to vacillate in the teaching between the very thing that you're talking about, what does it mean to participate in consciously becoming the self in this context? And what does it mean to pay attention to the tradition that we're in, meaning specifically the teachings of Jesus as they apply to where mm-hmm. we are? Those two things going back and forth. Or to paraphrase what Karl Barth said in his work, is that you have to do your work with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. I'm not going that far, but um, I think it's important. Uh, and and David Benner has convinced me of this uh, to be really clear about we're in a tradition. And as you've heard me say, quoting um, uh, Houston Smith before, it's better to dig, dig one well 60 feet deep than six wells 10 feet deep or mm-hmm. 10 wells mm-hmm. six feet deep. Mm-hmm. So we're in this tradition. And this goes back to John Sanford's work on the kingdom within and mm-hmm. just dredging up some of those teachings also to apply to this process. Yeah. I wanted to, I want to do that, but yeah. I like the idea of um, everybody needs some hope. This is a, people are feeling discouraged. For sure. You know, and, and hope's a funny thing because I think what did Emily Dickinson say? It's the thing with feathers. Um, which means in some way that it's ungraspable. But at the same time, I also think that hope is intergenerational. Um, And I'll tell this story now, because I don't know that I think we have enough listeners to ruin it for Sunday, but I have uncovered an ancestor of mine um, with an asterisk by her name, which means that her relation to my ancestral line is not clear because she didn't marry and she didn't have children. In other words, the paternalistic pattern that we have didn't count her because she didn't, she wasn't attached to a man. Mm. And so it's unknown whether she is actually part of this ancestral line or not, but the thought is that she is because her name matches the name of a daughter that a man had around that time. So she travels from Pennsylvania where she was involved in a Quaker community to Michigan. And in Michigan, she starts um, one of the first women's anti-slavery groups that became an integrated anti-slavery group that became um, 
I'm going to use this in metaphor terms, a stop on the Underground Railroad. And she was active in um, getting freed enslaved people um, who got themselves that far across to Canada where they could live a freer life. And um, she was an activist. She didn't buy cotton that was made or picked by enslaved labor. She didn't buy produce that was uh, uh, grown or picked by enslaved labor. She didn't buy sugar that was made or, or granulated or processed by enslaved labor. So she really was not, she was really living in a future time. And what I, so that's what I mean by hope is intergenerational. Some part of her had to know that as a woman acting within a group of other women, that she was not going to change society within the time that she was alive, but she was acting for the future, you know? And, and I think that, that she had to create a picture of something that was possible and then pull from the future to try and inspire her actions right now. I, I think the same thing about my husband's ancestors who were enslaved, that they had to pull from some future idea of themselves and apply it to the most horrific situation to hope for someone like Josh to be born free, free-ish in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. You know, so that that's, that's what I mean by, I think hope is intergenerational. You don't hope only for yourselves. You, you hope for the, for a better world for, for some future generation. I don't, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, mm -hmm. but I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm like, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> So can you apply what you just said to gun violence? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. And, you know, yes, that, and that gets even, yeah, let's explore that together. How can we apply what I just said to gun violence? If I want to imagine a world where guns do not exist, where they are not killing machines that we enact against one another. And I want to pull that image into our present. I have to think like, what is the step between now, the present where we are, where guns are run amok in this country, in this state, and a future idea where they don't exist, where they're not used as tools of violence and killing. Then I have to like work backward and go, what are the steps that it took to get to that future idea? Right. And so I wonder yeah. if we can just like explore and maybe pull out some of those steps that might be in between the here and the then. And one of them is is obviously policy, right? So the, the one step is policy. Another step is education. Another step is changing production and manufacturing, right? Because no matter what policies get enacted, if there are private companies that are producing and manufacturing these things, doesn't matter what policy we put into place. You know, so so there's all these big systems that we have to sort of like put in between the now and the then, the no longer and the not yet. And, yeah. Yeah. And and I just you wonder. Know, if it, it, yeah. Yeah. And when, when you said that, a multitude of images popped in my mind. One of them was recently when there was some debate about uh, continuing to uh, provide financial and logistical support for the war uh, for the people who are fighting 
in Ukraine against Russia, right? I don't know the war in Ukraine, whatever label you want to put on that horrible thing. And uh, one of the news shows that I saw about that showed the manufacturer of all of these huge shells that are being used to shoot in these huge guns that are being aimed at the Russian invasion, right, mm -hmm. from Ukraine. And there is a place, there are place, probably multiple places, but there is a place where these shells are being manufactured mm -hmm. on a regular basis. There's shells that are almost as tall as you are. Yep. Or, right? And, 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 uh, I, and I thought about, I recently re-looked at as a source for maybe uh, a path in teaching, uh, Karen Armstrong's 12 Steps to Compassionate Life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what had to happen in the, in the awareness of certain people in the culture that uh, in order to stop the carnage, you've got to stop the, the tools of carnage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in a culture that is based solely on making money, and being number one, mm -hmm. that's going to be really hard to do. Yeah, it is. So we, so it, it, again, like we can look at that and go, that feels like an impossible task. But when I think about what does it mean to live with an active relationship to hope, it just means taking the first step. Is it, was it, who, what rabbi was it that said, we're not responsible for changing for the outcomes of what it looks like to change the world? but we're responsible for what we do right here, right now. We're only responsible responsible for our small part in it. It was a rabbi who said that, but, um, but that's, that's all we can do. It, yeah. It could have been Abraham Joshua Heschel. I, I know. I was just thinking that it could have been, it makes me want to Google it real quick. Maybe I can talk, talk for a minute. <laughs> Okay. Well, I will talk about the fact that if you're listening to this and you get this in time, uh, Susanna Heschel, the daughter of Rabbi Joshua uh, Abraham Heschel, will be speaking here in Houston at Beth Yeshurun uh, Synagogue Temple on this Thursday night. And you have to, it's free, but they're requesting that you go on their website or you can go to Ordinary Life's website or St. Paul's website and register for free. And uh, with a summary that went out yesterday, I sent a link to an article about Susanna Heschel. She is an amazing person. She mm -hmm. was, uh, she lobbied to get herself to be the first female admitted to a particular path of rabbinic study. Oh, wow. And now she, uh, she teaches rabbinic studies at Dartmouth. Um, <laughs> she's a, she's just a winsome personality. I'm really looking forward to meeting her on, uh, on Thursday. That's cool. I'm, so pleased, uh, and I give public kudos to um, uh, Barbara Buckner for um, putting energy and money behind the effort to get Susanna Hitchell here to Houston to speak. And so, yeah, her father, uh, I don't know if you've read uh, much of Abraham Hitchell stuff, but he was, uh, he was an amazing man who, he's the guy who said, um, when it came to racial justice in the United States, I needed it. I needed to move my prayers from off my knees to on onto my feet. Yeah. I need to walk. Which is 
originally from Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Yeah, Frederick Douglass, who freed himself, was an enslaved person who said, I prayed for 20 years for emancipation, and I realized it wasn't working until I prayed with my feet. And and that's that was that's his movement. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't Heschel. It was a guy named Rabbi Tarfon who says, Don't be arrogant. Do not think that you alone can finish the job. Trust in your children and generations yet unborn to take in the task. Know that you are part of the living chain of people who have dreamed, worked for a better world, and carried on this mission for 4,000 years in an unbroken covenant. I imagine that this is also just a deeply rabbinical teaching that we carry on in this great chain of being, right? And this great chain of being means that what I do impacts the Native Americans, say, seven generations from now. Mm-hmm. What I do has an impact for at least seven generations, and I'm pulling from the seven generations behind me, you know. And and I'm you know I'm trying to like that story that I shared with you about my asterisk ancestor mm-hmm. is not one that is in the in the deep family lore that doesn't get passed yeah. down. Why didn't that story get passed down? Why isn't that the line of liberation? and freedom and love that got passed down in the family line. It got silenced. It got well, cut off. Well, it got asterisk. It said, we're not really sure if she's part of the family, but maybe she is. You know, this is interesting. My, my quick answer to that is it got stamped down because the one of the most destructive archetypes that's been part of this country since the very beginning has been that of white male patriarchy. So Absolutely. we keep you women out of the out of the picture yeah i had a conversation with a man yesterday going back to the gun violence thing which is something that's on my heart and mind um he said that uh, something i didn't know he said that the second amendment rights thing was originally put in the constitution to quell people anxiety in the south about um slave uprisings so if we could arm white people of course slaves couldn't get guns if we could arm white people they'd be um they'd feel better yeah so that's why that's in there yeah so you know one of the things i'm gonna wait and see what you write as you give me a kind of lead for Sunday, yeah. but one of the people that I'm thinking about drawing on is, is a woman that you and I mentioned on these podcasts before, Judy Canada, mm-hmm. however you say her name, mm-hmm. because in, in addition to her book, Radical Amazement, which I thought was just stunningly beautiful book, she also wrote a book called Radical Optimism, mm-hmm. and she chose deliberately not to use the word hope. Mm. And I might parse that out Sunday to talk about why she did that. Mm. Um, Because um, I don't remember exactly all of her reasons now, but she says that hope is one of the theological virtues and optimism is something you put into practice. Mm. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think Joanna Macy could just call it active hope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Live as if. Yeah, live as if. That's it. Maybe that's the name of our talk. Living as if. I was, that before? It, I, I was gonna. I was gonna call it hope is a four letter word, but I like <laughs> <laughs> live as if better. I love it. I like that too. <laughs> I say go with either one of those. I trust you. 
All right. Yeah. Well, both of us are on logistically very tight schedules yes. today. Yeah. Uh, I got to make myself early. look at least like I got out of bed today. <laughs> yeah. So uh, speaking of hope, I have to end with the story. I, as you know, see people for spiritual direction and counseling. And this morning I saw a woman uh, who woke up at two o'clock this morning and couldn't go back to sleep. And so um, what she did from two o'clock until time to actually get out of the house and make her day go was to read Gregory Boyle's book. Mm. You Which know one? Gregory Boyle. Of course I do. Like he she, has a second book out now. Uh, mm. the, the book that she was reading was uh, The Whole Language mm. by Gregory um, Boyle. It's his most recent book. Yeah. It, is that what it's called? Is it called The Whole Language? I think it is. Uh, yeah, I have it. I haven't started it yet, but it's um, in part because I haven't gotten to go back to like enjoyment reading. Um, but I have also read Tattoos on the Heart. It is excellent. Well, aren't you, aren't you finished with your dissertation now? And I mean, I'm more or less finished with my, you know, you know, it comes back. Please make these edits or we suggest these edits. Then you give it back. And then it, it's just, I'm in the dance. I'm in the dance. And okay. <laughs> all right, I must go. You must okay. go, and I will see you all here. Well, Holly and I hope to see you if you're in the geographical area this Sunday in Ordinary Life. Yes. Also, I encourage you to go hear uh, Susanna Hitchell on Thursday night. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye. Love you. Okay, bye. Bye.